If you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to John chapter 2. John 2, as we pick up our John study, thank you to Joshua for walking through our assurance of forgiveness last week and excited to get back into the gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me give you some structure, some context for where we've been and, and where we're, we're going. We could say actually that this passage marks the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, which is what John is going to focus on from now until the end of, of chapter 12. Uh, you could say that chapters 11 and 12 are a bridge of sort, but they still are Jesus's public ministry. Within chapters 2 through 12, there's also a smaller section that begins here in chapter 2 and extends through the end of, of chapter 4. And the, the way we see this smaller section is that it, it begins and it ends in Cana. If you look at that section, you'll find that here in, in chapter 2 we're in Cana, and in, at the end of chapter 4 we're back in Cana. And, and John is surely doing that on purpose through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And within those two areas, within chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 4, he's emphasizing through these different stories how the old is passing away as Jesus brings in the newness of his kingdom. Uh, this theme of newness is going to be something that we see over and over again in the next few weeks. And yet also remember that while we're entering into a new section, we are also closing out a, a, a week of, of introducing the person of Jesus. That week began back in chapter 1, verse 19, if you remember that. We've been counting uh, those days. At the beginning of the week, we heard the testimony of John the Baptist, followed by the testimonies of the, the five, uh, five of the soon-to-be 12 disciples, each identifying Jesus as the one that they and the whole world had been waiting for. You remember they said he's the Lamb of God, he's the Son of God, he's the great rabbi, the Messiah that Moses and all the prophets had spoken of, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. This week that we've been with Jesus also follows the, the beginning of John's gospel, John's uh, allusion to create the creation of the world in the first verses of this book. So there's a lot of themes that are coalescing and, and coming together, themes of creation and new creation, of who Jesus is and of what he was coming to do. And they're all coming together, and in many ways they culminate in chapter 2 as this week with Jesus comes to a close and the public ministry of Jesus begins on the seventh day of that week. Here in this passage, we also find the first, and, and what John may be saying is the primary uh, of, of at least seven signs in John's gospel. Depending on how you count them, you can find more or less, um, but seven, there's, a, there's definitely at least seven. Um, and this first sign is a sign um, that is, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the greater things. Remember, Jesus told Nathaniel, you'll, you'll see greater things than this. Um, and Jesus right away shows us one of those greater things. It's, it's one of the signs um, that, it's also one of the signs that John says at the end of the book, he was writing about so that we, his readers, would uh, believe in Jesus and find life in his name. Uh, the first sign, of course, is Jesus turning water into wine. If you think about that, on the surface, it's kind of simple. And it's actually a little random. Uh, if you were writing this gospel, if you were writing the story about 
the person who was coming to save the world, this is probably not where you would start. It's not a healing. It's not a resurrection. You'll notice it's actually not all that public. And the stakes, the stakes are really low. Uh, there's miracles that Jesus does where you know, little children have died or people have been sick for, for decades. But what are the stakes here? The stakes here is maybe embarrassment for a few people, the premature ending of a party. But, but there is, there, there's, there's nothing really hanging in the balance, as it were. And yet, there, there is something significant in this first sign that recalls all the former promises about the Messiah and looks forward to all the future glory of the coming kingdom. In fact, it's, it's a sign that gets at the heart of the longings that we all have and the fact that Jesus has come to lead us into a place of abundance, of forgiveness, of joy, and of happiness. Our lives, if we're honest, are in so many ways a search for joy and a search for contentment. And in this first sign, we discover this, that to see Jesus' glory and believe in him leads to a joy that is constantly new and continually better. That's our big idea from John 2. To see Jesus' glory and believe in him leads to a joy that is constantly new and continually better. It's a little long, I'll say it a third time. To see Jesus' glory and believe in him leads to a joy that is constantly new and continually better. In contrast to joy, our lives can sometimes feel a little bit like the wedding that we're going to read about, a party where the wine runs out too soon. <laughs> or maybe like an expensive dinner that doesn't actually end up tasting that great and the portion's so small that you're hungry when it's all done. Or, or maybe like a wedding, maybe you've seen it on something like America's Funniest Home Videos where they're bringing the cake out and it hits the floor, <laughs> and you never get to taste it. Life can feel like that because we're all searching for joy, for contentment, for, for happiness, for fulfillment, but it can often be so elusive, here one minute and, and gone the next, and sometimes it, it feels like it just kind of runs out. So Jesus begins his ministry by telling us that he's come so that the wine of joy will never run out ever again. Because to see Jesus' glory and believe in him leads to a joy that is constantly new and continually better. Now, I've said that, but we've got to be honest. That, that's not to say that we don't face hardship and difficulty. Even here, so early in Jesus' ministry, the shadow of the cross is looming large over this sign. And we who follow Jesus follow him on a path that leads to the valley of the shadow of death and even death itself. And yet, there is still joy in that. There's still joy now and eternal, ever-increasing joy to come in the new kingdom because of Christ. With all this in mind, let's look at John 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." 
And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. I was so struck by this story and my temptation was to break it down into an outline, which is never really a great thing to do with a story. Um, I think it's going to be better if we just walk through this account of Jesus' first sign and meditate on all that was going on here and try to get ourselves into the context of of what this sign meant and then to try to to draw out a little bit about what it tells us about Jesus and what it means to believe in him. So in other words, let's, let's pause first and really hear this story and then we're going to see what it says to us about who Jesus is. John paints the picture for us, doesn't he? He he does so first by talking about the who and the where of this event. It's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, Cana's location is uh, is disputed, but it was probably less than a a day's journey from Capernaum, which is where everyone ends up after the celebration is over. Uh, We usually associate Jesus, rightly so, with Nazareth, but it would seem that Capernaum, actually, a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, was his home base for a lot of his ministry. It's also where a lot of his disciples were from, including Peter. We know that Peter had a house there in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus's mother, Mary, was also at this wedding, uh, though she, she never, she's never mentioned by name in John's gospel. I don't know that that means anything, just interesting to note. Uh, along with her, Jesus is invited to the wedding, as well as all of his disciples, and possibly his brothers, and, and maybe his, his sisters, were there according to verse 12. Uh, We know for sure that Jesus had brothers, but the word for brothers here could also just refer to siblings, men and women, so he could have had sisters as well. We we just don't know. Um, Other than these specific guests, no one else is, is identified, not even the bride and groom. We don't know who they were. They could have been relatives of Jesus or just friends. We, we don't really know. But what we do know is that Mary was there, the disciples were there, and Jesus' brothers and maybe his sisters were there as well. So we can kind of see the crew. Maybe they, they were all at the same table or something, you know, however you want to imagine it at this wedding celebration. And of course, they're not the only guests. The entire town uh, would have been invited to this celebration. And, and this would actually not be the only day that it would have been celebrated. Here in America, a wedding might occupy you for half a day, 
though there's actually a growing trend towards shorter, more streamlined weddings here in Louisville on Valentine's Day at Whitehall Estates. They were offering uh, six slots for micro weddings, $500, and it got you and up to you and up to 20 guests, an officiant, uh, cake and champagne, and a photo, and you were done. Um, micro wedding. There was no such thing as a micro wedding in Jesus's day. I, I did a little research, too, about uh, Filipino weddings, and you may be more accustomed to this. Uh, uh, what I read was a traditional Filipino wedding lasted three days. Um, I don't know if that's still the case, probably in some areas, but not, not in every area. And, and in Jesus' day, the celebration of the wedding would have lasted at least three days, um, and as long as a week uh, that they would celebrate this wedding. Uh, we're told that they're at this wedding, but we don't know what day within the celebration uh, these events happened on, but it's obvious that it was, it was too early for the party to be over. <laughs> There's some concern that, that it should have gone on longer, but it was going to, to stop. The, the problem was that the, the wine was running low. And not just running low, it was gone. There's no wine left. Now, supplying sufficient food and drink for the celebration was the groom's responsibility. And in a shame-based culture, to run out of wine in the middle of the celebration would have been a total embarrassment. D.A. Carson even says that there's some evidence that the relatives of the bride could sue the groom for such a humiliating oversight. Now, Mary's there, and Mary becomes aware of what's going on. Uh, It could be that she was helping to organize things in some way. She seems to have some control over what's going on with the servants. And so she has some sort of authority in this this situation. And she tells Jesus, very simply, they have no wine. But it would seem that she told him in in some sort of way that she expected him to do something about it. Um, That could have been simply because he was her eldest child. Uh, Joseph may have have passed uh, sometime before, and so he was the one that uh, she looked to for help in different circumstances. Maybe she just knew that Jesus was a thoughtful and caring and resourceful man who could step in and maybe help come up with a, a solution. Or maybe she was thinking about some of the prophecies before his birth, and she was wondering if, if now might be the time for him to do something unique. Well, whatever was on Mary's mind, there, there seemed to be something else on Jesus' mind, He responds to her statement in a way that seems a bit dismissive, doesn't it? He says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, to call her woman, that sounds a little disrespectful, doesn't it? Uh, However, it was was not not a disrespectful thing for Jesus to say, but it also wasn't familiar. It wasn't, mom, this this doesn't have anything to do with me. That's not what he says. It, there's, there's not a softness to it. The NIV says, dear woman, which is probably assuming a little bit too much, actually. It probably conveys in some way that while Jesus is still Mary's son, as he begins this public ministry, he's also stepping into this role that he is the, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And her familial connection doesn't give her any kind of authority or, or special way or special sway in, in connection to the mission that Jesus has. He, he is, 
in some ways stepping back and saying, this is, this is different than what's going on in the family. This is new and unique. His brothers learn the same lesson we'll find in, in chapter 7 when they try to force his hand on something. But it's what Jesus says about his hour that's probably most revealing. Did you notice that he says, my hour has not yet come? And this theme of the hour is one that John is going to continue throughout his gospel. This is where it first shows up. And what we find in chapter 12 is, is exactly what the hour is, and he calls it the hour of his glorification. But it's a glor- glorification that occurs through his humiliation, through his death on the cross. With this in mind, Tim Keller points out that, that here at this wedding, it could be that Jesus' mind, as he's thinking about this hour, is, it, is also in fact taken to his, his own bride, to the church. In John 3, he's said to be the bridegroom, and he's responsible for providing what is needed for the celebration of his wedding. But the wine that he's going to provide, as we're going to see, we'll see in John 6, as we see in the Last Supper, is his blood. Jesus turns Mary's request, and he actually takes this whole wedding celebration and, and makes it a, a parable. There's need, there is is wine that is needed to bring everlasting joy so that the celebration never has to stop. But now is not the time for that particular wine to be poured out. That hour is still later. The hour of Jesus' glorification has not yet come. So that wine will not show up at this feast. I'm not sure what Mary understood, but she seemed to have some inkling that, that Jesus wasn't saying no because she, she doesn't take his word as a rejection. Instead, she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. It's a beautiful um, lesson in here, a lesson about how we bring our requests to Jesus. Mary tells Jesus the problem and then trusts him to do whatever is best to deal with the situation. Sometimes all we know in life is that there's a problem and that Jesus can fix it. That's all we know. Uh, we don't know how he's going to do it, just as I'm sure Mary had n- would have never guessed how Jesus was going to solve this problem. Um, she could have come up with a list of solutions for what he could do, but this would not have been on that, that list. But we can trust Jesus and even be those that just do whatever he tells us to do. And maybe sometimes those things that he tells us to do actually don't make complete sense in the moment. Uh, But in hindsight, we see the wonder of what Jesus was doing. You know, our prayers can be specific. I think sometimes there's a, a desire to have very specific prayers. But sometimes all we can say is, Jesus, this is the situation. I trust that you can do something. I trust you to do what's best, and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And that's a beautiful prayer, I think, of faith. Sometimes we may think that we don't know what to pray or we don't know how to pray, but I think it's because we assume that our prayers need to have some sort of solution within them. We think we need to say, Jesus, this is the situation, and here's what you should do. (laughs) But we may have no idea what, what should happen. And we may actually be dead wrong even if we come up with a game plan for God. 
But in every and any circumstance that we, that we come into, we can say, Jesus, this is the situation. This is the problem. I trust you to do what is best, and I'll do whatever you ask me to. And that's a beautiful prayer of submitting to him. Well, after this interaction between Mary and Jesus, John sort of invites us to picture six stone jars. Not little jars, okay? So don't picture six tiny jars. These were jars that were used for ceremonial washings, possibly of hands, maybe of of utensils that would have been used at the feast, all done in accordance with Old Testament law, maybe with a few added stipulations from the Pharisees. Uh, These jars were big. They, They were 20 to 30 gallons each, making them hold altogether 100 to 150 gallons of water. John tells us about these jars because Jesus said to the servants, fill all these jars up. (laughs) You imagine, I don't know how long that would take if they were completely empty. They're drawing from a well. I don't know how much they can pull up at a time, but I imagine these guys worked hard for a good while to fill them up and they fill them all the way to the brim. And meanwhile, while they're doing all this, everyone's saying, hey, I'm ready for another glass of wine. Where's the wine at? And, and they're busy filling up these, these giant jars. Once those jars are filled to the brim, Jesus then says, now, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, to the head waiter. You might think of him even as like the caterer. But there's, there's no indication that these servants protested. They didn't say, take the water to him? Is that really what you want us to do? (laughs) They simply did what Jesus asked them to do. It was brought to the master of the feast, and verse 9 says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. That's the miracle. That's how John tells it. Did you notice that? That It's so so subtle in in the way that it's revealed. If you didn't know this story, you actually could read it and, and miss it almost. The water taken from the purification jars had quietly and almost secretly become wine. 100 to 150 gallons of wine. That's about between 500 and 750 bottles of wine. It's a lot of wine. (laughs) And yes, it was wine. It was fermented. Wine in those days was not as strong as modern-day wine, but there was, there was alcohol in it. Everything about this text tells us that, especially the response of the master of the feast. He, he makes a whole show of it, if, if you'll let me use my imagination, you know. He, he calls the bridegroom up. The bridegroom probably would have been like a teenager, maybe 20-something. Uh, and, and this is the guy. This is the guy who had completely miscalculated the amount of wine that was needed for this wedding. This is the guy who moments before was about to face the greatest shame of his entire life. It's a shame that would probably follow him for the rest of his life. Years later, when the family gathered around him and his wife on their anniversary, they would surround the couple and they'd, they'd raise a glass of wine in toast to their marriage. And his wife's aunt would say, good thing we got enough wine for this toast. Remember the wedding when, we, went out of, when uh, we all ran out of wine? Asher didn't have enough for us. And, you know, poor Asher is middle-aged now, but he'd probably blush like he was a, a child. because, And that's how it should have gone. That's, I mean, this guy messed up. But 
Instead, the, the head waiter brings him forward. And again, I'm using my imagination a little bit because it says that he just talks to him, but I, it, it almost seems public that he kind of interrupts the party, uh, quiets everyone down, and maybe he said something like, you know, uh, you know, I cater a lot, of, a lot of weddings, and at every wedding, people bring out the best wine right at the beginning. And then in the later hours and in the later days, they haul out all the cheap stuff. Because, you know, some of you have already had too much wine, and you won't be able to tell the difference. He says, that's how it usually goes. But, but not this guy. <laughs> this guy saved the best for now. And not just the best wine of this wedding, but the best wine I've ever tasted. So make sure you get a glass of this wine, and, and why don't we all give a, a round of applause for, for Asher and the great wine that he brought for us. <laughs> and back at the jars, you can see the servants are kind of looking at each other because it tells us here they knew. Even as we were reading that, I was wondering how unique the first people to, to really have an up-close look at one of Jesus' signs or servants, hmm, came for the lowly, didn't he? But they just kind of look at each other and, and shake their heads in amazement. And Mary and the disciples, they, they kind of know what's going on. And they look at each other and they say, we knew it. We told you guys that he's the Messiah. And we're told that they believed in him because of this sign. And because that sign had revealed Jesus' glory. It's a beautiful story filled with just a lot of cultural details, but when you see them, it just is a, an amazing picture of who Christ is. But, but what exactly does it tell us about Jesus? What, what glory does it display? Again, it's, it's private. It's, it's small. It's insignificant. It's really not of any weight. Let's say two things. We could say more, but first we'll say this. Jesus is the Savior who can purify us. It tells us that Jesus is the Savior who can purify us. There's no accidents in this story. And it is no accident that Jesus puts water into jars that were used for Old Testament law-keeping and then turns it into wine. In fact, Carson says, he says there's a good argument that could be made that the servants filled the water jars and then when Jesus told them to draw out the, the, the wine, that they didn't actually do it from the jars, but they did it from the well. Possible. And, and that would mean that those jars would, would sit there filled to the brim with water, signifying that the old covenant practices were complete. And now this new wine was being drawn from the well. Well, wherever the wine came from, in the end, Jesus announces that, that he is able to bring purification in a new and a better and a more joyous and life-giving way than the law ever could. Let, let's, say he did, let's say he did turn the water in the jars into wine. What happens? Suddenly, there's nowhere left to perform the rites of purification. People show up and they go to wash their hands or to wash their, their spoons in the jars and the servants go, wait, 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 that's, that's the wine. You can't, you can't wash stuff in there. They can't even do the rites of purification anymore. What do they have to do? Drink the wine. <laughs> 
Purification doesn't come anymore through washing. What's it come through? It comes through drinking the wine that Jesus has abundantly provided. The gospel call, remember, is not to clean ourselves up, but it's to take up the cup of salvation and to drink it. To find in Jesus the purification that comes because his life and death and resurrect because of his life and death and resurrection, and then to joyously celebrate the forgiveness that he freely gives. It's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate what Christ has done. So this sign tells us that Jesus is the Savior who can purify us. Not these jars filled with water, but Jesus, the one who gives wine. It also says that Jesus is the bridegroom who provides the never-ending feast. Jesus is the bridegroom who provides the never-ending feast. As the disciples and the servants marveled, we might wonder what Jesus was thinking. And I imagine his mind probably hadn't traveled far from what he was thinking about when Mary first approached him about the situation. He was probably thinking about his hour, realizing that if he was going to bring this kind of joy to his people, not just for a few days at a wedding, but for all eternity, it would happen not through drawing wine from a few stone jars, but through the spilling of his own blood and the breaking of his body. The cup of wine that he was drinking was a reminder of the cup of wrath that he would drink for all who believe so that we could freely drink of his salvation. Back to the wedding, I wonder, I wonder why the bridegroom failed to have enough wine. You know, maybe he was just naive. He was young. He didn't realize how many people were going to show up, and he didn't know how much they were going to drink. Maybe he was a little bit stingy. Maybe he thought he could get by with less than everyone was telling him that he needed. Maybe he could, you know, save a little money. Maybe he was poor. Maybe he bought as much as he could, but he didn't have any more money, and so he said, this is what I've got. I don't have anything else. Whatever he was, Jesus is the opposite though, right? Jesus was not naive. Jesus knew what it would cost to give his children the wine of salvation. And he willingly laid down his life to provide everything that was necessary to save us. Jesus was not stingy. He paid for our redemption all the way to the point of death. And he was not poor but he did become poor so that we could become rich and receive forgiveness through his priceless blood. So even though Jesus is crucified, Jesus suffers no shame. Rather, he is exalted to the highest place as the bridegroom who has done everything necessary to purchase the eternal celebration of his bride. And at this moment, he sets in motion the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, that we see at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Surely this was in someone's mind. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain 
he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's a feast better than this one. It's the one our hearts are made for and that every feast points to. The disciples got this in some way because they believed, they saw his glory. But what does it look like to believe in Jesus, the giver of new and better wine, so that we might know a joy that is constantly new and continually better? What does it look like to believe? I'm not even gonna try to come up with anything better um, than the way that Tim Keller explained it. Just kinda blew me away. He said, belief according to this passage, becoming a Christian according to this passage looks like this. You have to admit that you're empty and then you have to take all the credit. (laughs) You have to admit that you're empty and you have to take all the credit. You have to admit that you're empty. You have to come to Jesus and say, I'm all out. (laughs) We ran out. I got nothing. I I can't save myself. In fact, I'm so full of shame because all all that I've, I'm ashamed of all that I've done. I'm ashamed of all that I failed to do. I'm hopeless. I'm lost. I'm all out. And then you know what you do? You take all the credit. This silly bridegroom gets all the credit that Jesus deserves. Jesus doesn't step forward and say, actually, that was me. I turned all this water into wine. He lets that guy stand up there and get all of the credit. And we silly sinners, through repentance and faith in Jesus, Jesus' atoning death, have the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. So says Keller, our response to the gospel is this. God, accept me though I've blown it, and give me credit for what Jesus has done in my place. Isn't that good? God, accept me because, because I've, accept me though I've blown it, and give me credit for what Jesus has done in my place. That's the gospel. And if we see Jesus' glory here in this sign, but even more so in his death and his resurrection, and if we believe in him, then we find a joy that is constantly new and continually better, a joy that pursues us through our valleys, that makes even the best of earthly gifts even more sweet. And it's a joy that will never, ever run out for all eternity. Let me invite you to take a moment of silence and reflect.
on Jesus. And then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we, we thank you that your word by your spirit is always so fresh. Some of us have heard this story before we could talk. And yet, it just jumps off the page with the beauty of who you are, of, of your love, and of the joy that you long to give us, of your compassion to we silly sinners, of the way that, that if we will admit that we have nothing, that you will credit to us everything that you have done. Lord, fill us with the joy of the gospel today, the joy of what Christ has done, and, and the joy of, that, that awaits us with a, a longing, Lord, to, to say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for the marriage supper of the Lamb that will never end where the wine will never run out and we will be with you forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.